Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me down the road is my mother, Caroline Kilborn. Good morning, everyone. And we're I in hope a... it's, I hope it's nice where you are. <laughs> it sure is nice. We are having such a glorious June. We are. Yeah, it's kind of we making are. up yeah. for some of the lousy weather we had earlier. We kind of thought we weren't going to get spring, but we finally... It finally, it, it went it's, like winter, summer, spring, something like right. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, uh, you know, our guest today is a Midwesterner too, so he understands weather. It was a <laughs> okay. tough, tough, tough April here in Michigan. <laughs> so, Mom, who is our guest today? Our guest today is uh, Wade Rouse, and he is a... Um, the USA Today and internationally best-selling author of 13 books, including four memoirs and nine novels. His books have been translated into 21 languages and have been bestsellers across the world. He chose his uh, grandmother's name, uh, Viola Shipman, as pen name to honor the work, working poor Ozarks woman whose heirlooms and best family stories inspire his fiction. His latest uh, novel, the Secret of Snow. It was an instant at national and indie, indie bestseller. Oh boy! Well, this this is an interesting, a very interesting book, and uh, I, I know everybody's going to want to read it. <laughs> and the book is Magic Season. Welcome to yes. Writers' Voices, Wade. Thanks for having me. I love I love that you two do this together. <laughs> most of my most of my. But for intergenerational readers, this is a a special pleasure. Oh, well, and of course, Magic Season, a son's story, is about your relationship with your father, mostly, um, told through the lens of a baseball game. Exactly right. Yeah, this is, you know, I call this my, my, this is my first memoir in over a decade that I write a number of novels under my and named my grandmother's name, Viola Shipman. And it was, um, you know, it's a, it's a book very deeply personal that follows the relationship of me and my father through the very last baseball game we ever watched together, which was a 2015 playoff game between the Cards and the Cubs. And, you know, in many ways, baseball was um, the only thing that bridged the gap. It was the, our love language between me and my dad. <laughs> and we didn't see eye to eye on much. <laughs> he was a true Ozarks man. Um, and didn't wasn't capable of really expressing a lot of emotion, but you know, sitting down and watching, listening to games, attending games, thousands of games, Cardinals games over the years, really was um, something that was able to bridge the gap and allow us to have, you know, as I call it, a walk off home run in the ninth inning. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What made you want to write this story? Um. It took me a while to to wrap my arms around this. My father passed away in 2015, and I think that you know, as you and readers know, it, you know, sometimes great loss takes a little bit of time for um, me to wrap your head around. You know, you need time and perspective and distance sometimes. And I wrote this because um, I have so many friends of a certain age who have lost parents in the last few years, um, either you know, through old age or, you know, through, especially through COVID. And I wanted to write something that was cathartic for me, but also 
you know, talked about the one thing I think is as children and as parents, we both want in our deepest relationships with it, which is, you know, unconditional love, which my mom always said is the hardest thing to give and receive in this world and acceptance. And I, my father taught me, you know, pretty much he is a person that taught me the incredible transformational ability that people have in this world and in this life. If you don't give up on them and if you show them acceptance and unconditional love. And uh, it was not always easy to stand by my father. Um, he did many things um, to hurt me over the course of, of our lives. But I also come from the Irma Bombeck School of Writing, which is, you know, seeking to understand and not to blame. And that's, I tried to understand who my father was, how he was raised, the time in which he was raised, the environment in which he was raised. And, um, you know, we were able to bridge our, our gap. I I love that you mentioned Irma Bombeck. I remember reading her col- columns in the newspaper mm. as a kid and mm-hmm. loving loving it. And what is it? That, I think it was the title of one of her books that I'll never forget. If if life is a bowl of cherries, what am I doing in the pits? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The that grass was, is yeah. always greener over the septic tank. Yeah, yeah. She was pretty transformational. I I was exactly like, you know, I grew up in a tiny town in the Missouri Ozarks, less than a thousand people. And um, my grandma, both of my grandmothers were seamstresses and my grandma Shipman, my pen name was, um, she didn't finish high school. She never learned to drive and she stitched overalls at a local factory until she couldn't stand straight. And my grandpa was an ore miner, and when that work dried up, he raked rocks on farmers' fields to, to make extra money. Um, and they saved pennies and change in a crock in their garage, so my mom would be the first to go to college. And I remember when they would read at Wits End in our local paper, and they would smile or laugh. And I thought, my gosh, if I could ever do that, that would be the greatest gift in the world. And I really became <laughs> kind of a disciple of Irma Bombex. I've even taught at her writing workshop and given a keynote there and she um you know i truly believe in everything i love everything that the way she wrote and why she wrote the things she did you know i truly believe it's the minute moments in life that matter the most um you know most of us aren't going to scale um the kilimanjaro or do anything like that it's just the tiny little things that unite us um that are beautiful um and painful and that's what i like to write about Mm-hmm. Now, um, magic season is in some ways a very sad story, but there's a lot of humor in it. And are all your memoirs humorous? They are. You know, I kind of, it's interesting. I've been compared uh, on occasion to, you know, David Sedaris or Augustine Burroughs, Nora Ephron. But I, I do believe in humor to, you know, really, I think you could – you can write about serious topics and you can only preach at people and wag your finger so much. You know, and I think (laughs) humor is a way to really, you know, when you're talking about things that are very tough to hear or very tough to remember, it's a way to lift people kind of up out of that ditch and, and provide some levity and some clarity. And so I use it as kind of, um, you know, it's kind of a, you know, an after-dinner drink to what I'm writing about sometimes to, get, to let people out of how they're feeling. You know, um, 
it seemed like for a while we were getting a lot of really severe like trauma memoirs, um, yeah. memoir books, and not that they aren't, you know, some of them were really wonderful, um, wonderfully written and very meaningful books. But I have to say that, I mean, it's not like you didn't have a fair share of trauma that you're dealing with in this book, but because of the humor and the, I don't know, it just... To me, it just, it's more impactful. I thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I, I do. I believe in, you know, the three H's, you know, it's, you got to be, you got to be honest and heartfelt, but, you know, humor has got to <laughs> be a huge piece of that. And, you know, my dad, I, I came from a fun, funny family. You know, I compare my mom and dad to, you know, great characters in St. Louis Cardinals history. You know, they they were I call what I call good crazy in the Ozarks. You know, there's bad crazy <laughs> and there's good crazy. And my mom and dad were huge characters. They were very funny. You know, we use you know people that use I would say funny people. You have to look at how and why they use humor. And a lot of the time, it's a way to bring people in, but it's also a way to keep people at bay. Sometimes, you know, you can mm-hmm. you can make them laugh and keep them a little bit at distance. And that's how my family operated and how I used humor a lot in my life. Um, but, you know, it's also a coping mechanism. You know, if you, you know, my mom taught me early on with, you know, big seminal moment in my life was I lost my brother when I was 13 and he was 17. And my mother taught me a great deal about, you know, about, about faith and resilience, but also about the importance of humor and being able to laugh at yourself. And if you can't do that, you're not going to get very far in this world. Wow. I imagine it took some time after your brother's death to be able to laugh. It, it did, you know, I, it was, um, as, as you can imagine, it was so, so difficult. You know, he was in many ways, everything that I was not, you know, and everything I felt that I, I was not going to be able to give my father, you know, he was a true country boy, he could hunt, he could fish, he could fix motors and engines. Um, he was rough and tumble and I was not like that at all. And I always, you know, always felt that God had taken the wrong person in life, that it should have been me because I would never mm-hmm. fulfill my father's dreams. So that's all, you know, that was a big burden to, to live with. Oh. And it was, it was hard for many, many years. Um, and, you know, my mom, I talk and write a lot about was a nurse and a hospice nurse later in her career. And she taught me a lot about, you know, not living with regret. Um, and making amends mm-hmm. before it was too late. And that there has to be a reason behind this life is just, she felt too intricate to be happenstance and that we had to make meaning of this. Um, and so it, it was, it was very hard and it changed the trajectory of our family in many, many ways. Um, and it forced me to confront things at an earlier age than I, than I probably would have in my life. Um, and you know, I, what I, do now I still everything I write is really in honor of family and trying to connect those connect that history to people and so Wade are all of your novels written under your grandmother's pen name they are yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, I had written um you know I'd written four memoirs and then uh, my mother passed away in 2009 and long story short, I was down helping my, you know, many men of that era don't do well when their spouses pass. And I was helping my dad move 
um, from our childhood home into a smaller place. And I came upon in the attic in the garage all of my grandmother's heirlooms, um, you know, boxed away. There were her recipe boxes and recipe cards, quilts, um, their charm bracelets, um, their hope chests um, filled with McCoy vases and desert rose dishes. And I had a little bit of a breakdown. I was very emotional. Um, and it struck me at that time that my grandparents were never poor. They were the richest pe people I'd ever known because they understood what mattered most in life. Um, something we've been reminded of these last few years, you know, it's really just having our health and our home and our friends and our family, just having each other. And I started writing what would be my first novel that very day called The Charm Bracelet on a cardboard box. And I called my literary agent <laughs> when I was six Aww. months in and I said, you know, I'm going to switch to contemporary women's fiction and I'd really <laughs> like to use my grandmother's name as a pen name. And she goes, are you off your meds? <laughs> <laughs> and so I just, it was a, t you know, it, it really was like a literary Victor Victoria. It's a weird, odd sell, not only to my agent, but also when she was pitching it to publishers, you know, new publishers and editors, totally different genre. And we were a little worried. And I have to say, the backstory has resonated so deeply with people. You know, my, my grandmother, they truly did not have two nickels to rub together. And she sacrificed everything for us to have a better life. And she was the most ego-free ego woman, you know, in the world. I would say her only sign of ego was um, venting a, her pie crust with an S for shipment. <laughs> and she was just amazing. She always, she volunteered at the library. She pushed books into my hands. Um, she didn't want me to, ha to have as hard a life as she did. Um, and I just... I want people to say her name and I want people long after I'm gone to walk into a library or bookstore and pick up one of my novels and understand why I chose her name and hopefully reconnect with their family or ask questions before it's too late of their elders. Um, you know, those are, that's the foundation of all of my novels. And I've been very proud that, um, and humbled that her story is, is resonating with people. Well, I can imagine that it would have been tricky because you know, you had already kind of broken in as a published author, and then you're kind of having to do it all over, start from scratch in building an audience and so forth. And and you're anyway, and a totally different audience. I mean, it was it was very different, and it, it's it was it was you know those were all worrisome issues for a publisher. And I always said I didn't want to dupe any reader. You know, they're like, how do you want to handle this? And I'm like. Well, I want to tell the story I'm telling and have my picture on the back so people know, you know, although my first events, I would show up and people would go, why is a man taking stage? Where's Viola? <laughs> so it wasn't, right. you, you weren't pulling an Alana Ferrante where you were hiding who you were as the writer. Not, that's, that's, you know, exactly. That's not at all. I really wanted to be very open because, you know, I'm in a wonderfully um, female dominated genre, you know, with, you know, authors like Mary Kay Andrews and Christy Woodson Harvey and Nancy Thayer and Ellen Hildebrand. And I admire and love all of them. And I, I just, I was not, I'm a huge, I'm obviously a huge reader and a huge reader of women's fiction as was my mom our whole lives. And there were not a lot of stories that I was reading of women like my mother and grandmother's um, 
in in the fiction that I was reading, especially women over 40 who were being dealt a lot of tough blows in life um, that had maybe been distanced from their family in some way. You know, I'm a I'm an uplifting writer and very sentimental, and we did not know how that would work either. And it's, um, people people are jonesing for those types of books again. It seems. So how many how many Viola Shipment novels have you published? Eight so far, and my um, ninth is coming out July 12th. It's called The Edge of Summer, and it's inspired by my grandmother's buttons and button jars, and kind of how we tend to overlook oh, the simple things I and love people in our lives. Jars. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. I still have, I don't have it in a jar. I have it in a tin. I still have my button tin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I never I have use all them of anymore. My <laughs> I have all my grandmother's button jars and, you know, they kept, yeah, they did. They kept them in Crayola boxes and cookie tins and all yep. of those things. I have yep. all of them. And yeah, they used to, I used to sit in their sewing rooms. I mean, so many years and watch them watch them sew or quilt and it was amazing and the, and the novel has a huge history of the pearl button industry in the u.s which was huge in iowa muscatine iowa yes was the, <laughs> so that's so that's really a huge piece of the book is you know what this meant at the time and you know how these buttons were made and got into sewing baskets and it really influences the characters backstories a lot and it's you know, it's just about us overlooking the simple things in our lives, which we, we tend to do too much today. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline, and our guest today is Wade Rouse, author of Magic Season, A Son's Story. So in Magic Season, you're um, telling the story of kind of a time near your father, the end of your father's life, but with a lot of flashbacks to both your childhood and other times, you know, in your life, was it, it could have been, it could be very confusing because you're moving around in time a lot and yet it's not. Mm. So <laughs> at least that was my feeling. How about you, mom? Yeah, I got the same, same thing. It, it, uh, I, I, but I, I couldn't believe I couldn't believe I couldn't believe how your some of the things your father did. I mean, I'm just I was mm. just um, you know like a, not uh, like the Northwest was it Northwestern yeah. University? Yeah, I that just he, that just blew my mind. It really did when he tore up the letter or didn't give it to you that you had been accepted. But yeah. um, that was uh, so. How did you find out that you had been then? It was. I got a call from um, the admissions office after I had gone back from undergrad and gone back and then told me, and I had no clue. I just thought I hadn't been accepted. Um, you know, that was, as you mentioned, it was one of the most painful things in my life um, that my I'm father sure. would kind of sabotage my, my, my college career. But it's interesting, and, and people think I'm a little bit crazy for for saying this and writing about it this way, but I, I, you know, the only way I could heal was kind of understand why he would do something like that, which was he felt there was no need for, for me or anyone in this world to have a master's degree. He didn't understand <laughs> the importance of it. He didn't understand mm -hmm. um, the need for me to run away to a bigger city, um, either to live or, you know, or to get, or to further my education in many ways. Um, I, forget, I think they call it the 
might be getting this wrong, but the crab pot syndrome where when somebody leaves, you know, they try to pull you back down um, mm. to where you are. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, that's the way my dad was. You know, I, he, I know deep down he was hurt and felt I was abandoning him and where I grew up and the life that he had given me. Um, that's how I saw it. But it took me a lot right. of a lot of time to to deal to deal with this. And thank you for saying that about the structure. You know, I I struggle. Every book I write is very nonlinear. So I, <laughs> I struggle mm-hmm. I struggle mightily with how I structure a book. It's really vital to me, and I try to be very inventive and in how I how I approach every memoir and every novel. Well, that's what. Yeah, I wanted to get into that a little bit because. It is inventive, and it's also, um, I can imagine it took a lot of effort to make it feel effortless, to make it read effortlessly. I approach writing nonfiction very differently than how I write fiction. It's much more, you know, at Northwestern, I, I majored and um, I got my master's degree in magazine publishing, so kind of longer form you know, journalism, essay writing was really how I started in memoir writing and what I loved. And that's how I approach every memoir. It's kind of more essay form that I kind of puzzle piece together. And um, I I was sitting over the years, you know, especially at the end of my dad's life, we would talk and I would, you know, I always had my computer out, which he hated as we talked. And I, you know, felt writers around people, they start to get nervous because we're always writing and taking notes. Or, <laughs> And I started to do that, and it really did hit me that, you know, and I had not read any any books that had been structured in this way where, you know, it kind of went inning by inning through a game. And I thought, my gosh, that would make an ideal structure at some point for a book that you could, you know, you could talk about present day, but also go back and forth in a life. Um, and it just, it was not easy to pull off. My editor at HarperCollins is a wonderful guy, and he said, you know, because um, I'd sent some early pages, and he goes, you know, this book really, like most memoirs, has to be like, you know, packing your backpack for a very long hike. You know, you can only put in what's essential um, <laughs> to get you to that peak. And so, you know, you've been, we're going to have to unload a lot of things here to make sure that we can make it. And that really helped me kind of mentally um, prepare for for the massive editing that I had to do to kind of get it into that structure. Oh, wow. So – with everything that you cut out, do you have enough for another book? <laughs> yeah, I've not been asked that. That's a great question. It's, it's interesting. I ended up cutting a lot out about my mother. Um, she's uh, was, you know, I hate platitudes, but my mother was the closest to a, a saint that I've known in this world. She was ahead of her time and very smart. And, you know, a woman in the Ozarks that, you know, you know, she volunteered and campaigned for JFK and Obama, which was verboten in the Ozarks. And uh, she she just, I think, has a book about her in there of maybe, mm. you know, being overlooked and how she was. So, yeah, ironically, I think so much of my mom and my dad's book was kind of cut out. I think there could be a place for her on her own. I think so, too. She seemed oh, like yeah. a, so. a yeah. pretty amazing woman. It must have been I mean I don't know how how she was able to maintain her beliefs mm. with with 
you know, being surrounded by, you know, even in her own home with the opposite. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's you, very it's, brave, really. It's brave and it's something that I really, I still, that's interestingly one thing I still struggle with just in my life now is, you know, and I write a little bit about it. My mother used to, you know, say that she was thinking of blaming my father or she, you know, uh-huh. she should have uh-huh. loved him. And I kind of would, if you knew my mother, you know, my mother, um, Ozark Southern storyteller, I write about this. She could tell stories that lasted for days. She never <laughs> met a comma or period in her life. <laughs> my, da- my dad, she would tell the same stories over and over. My dad would walk away and scream, land the plane, Geraldine, from another room. And it just... <laughs> It just, I think we saw her sometimes, or I did even too much as a character um, and not really, and maybe it was because I was struggling with my own demons or my own grief or my own issues with my dad that I didn't see hers clearly enough. Mm. Um, But it was, she was brave, you know, she didn't want to leave him. She, um, she did love him deeply and she loved me deeply. And I think she didn't want to, cause any more trauma or chaos than her remaining child's life. Um, so I struggle with that a lot still, if maybe I should have helped her reached out more. Hmm. So Wade, would you like to read a little bit from magic season? Sure. Yeah. I've got, um, a couple of passages, but I'm going to read, I'm going to read one. Um, and this is a little bit later in the book. Um, when, my parents come to visit me and um, my now husband of 27 years um, in, in our home in St. Louis. And it's just a little excerpt about kind of what love means. When my parents first visited me and Gary in St. Louis, long after he had moved in, my mom was stunned at the transformation of my bungalow, both inside and out. Gary had painted the walls and decorated. He had landscaped the front and backyards turning them into miniature botanical gardens. We were making breakfast later that morning when my mom noticed the valentine hanging on the refrigerator that I had made for Gary when we first met. It was a voucher that, in the shape of a heart, an IOU that stated, I promise to love you for the rest of my life. You may collect daily. My mom told me most people see their heart as a childish valentine's drawing, but it's actually a fist. You want someone that makes it pump faster, that makes it stronger every day. I believe that my mother was right and wrong. I've actually come to believe that love takes on many different shapes or forms to each of us. I think of what my father said to me so very long ago. You will never be a real man. You will never be the man that I was. But isn't that a good thing? Isn't that what fathers, what all parents strive for? That their children will not be replicas of themselves, but their own unique selves. In the over 150 years of Major League Baseball history and over 220,000 games played, there have been 23 official perfect games by the current definition. No pitcher has ever thrown more than one. You would think over that length of time that would have happened, right? But think of how hard it is not only to throw the perfect pitch time after time, but also to throw the right pitch time after time. The chances are that eventually a pitcher will make a mistake. The fastball isn't on the corner, but right down the middle of the plate. The curve doesn't curve. 
the sinker doesn't sink. The optimist in me truly believed that a new day would bring a new chance for a perfect game. But it's difficult to navigate life in this way, feeling as if you're running across quicksand, praying every step is the right one and hoping against hope you won't go under by making a mistake. I consider most relationships with our parents to be the equivalent of a perfect game. I know some of my friends who have had seemingly ideal relationships with their parents, but when you ask or dig deeper, you discover the truth. It's nearly impossible to have a perfect parent-child relationship. 23 of 220,000 games comes out to be a percentage of 0.00001. In other words, it's a damn near impossibility. And yet every pitcher who walks out onto that mound every single game is striving to pitch a perfect game, just like every dad who holds his son for the very first time vows to be the perfect father. He will not be like his dad. He will make history. What is a good man? What is a bad man? What is a real man? What simply is a man? Maybe it's owning up to your weaknesses, like knowing you can't hit a curveball or that you'll never be fleet of foot, or that you can never drink again. Maybe it's letting go of everything and just learning to be. Maybe it's being a better person than you ever imagined, or maybe it's just trying to be a decent one. I don't know. I don't think I will ever know. But I do know love, all its beauty and horror, all its tricks and wonders. I know because I waited my entire life to find it. I searched for it like I used to do diamonds when my parents would take me to Arkansas gym fields and I would dig in the dirt all day long as though my life depended on it. Mm -hmm. I lost a brother, a mother, nearly my entire family. And yet here I sit watching a game with my father and my husband. And I know love is not shaped like a heart. We've had it wrong all these years. Love is shaped like a baseball. It may seem as round and as easy to toss about from one person to the next just like an infielder warming up before a game, but it isn't. Love comes right at you, pitch after pitch, inning after inning, game after game, season after season. Sometimes it's a fastball, sometimes it's disguised as a knuckler, but most often love is a curve. You don't know where it's going. Sometimes you'll miss it badly. Sometimes you'll foul it off, but sometimes you end up getting a mighty swing at it. And if you make contact, you're not lucky. You're damn good because you never took your eye off love from beginning to end. Thank you. That was Wade Rouse reading from Magic Season, A Son's Story. There was a period of time when, like several years, when you weren't on speaking terms with your father. How did that end? (laughs) How did you get back? It, it was, you know, when I um, came out to my father, um, he did not speak to me for two years. He wrote me a letter, which was actually a, a major feat on its own because my father never wrote anything in his <laughs> life. Um, a very long letter to me saying um, essentially that I was out of his life and the family. Um, he couldn't imagine why I'd made this decision, not realizing it wasn't a decision. Um, and that my life largely would be filled with darkness and I would lose everyone and everything I had. Um, and it was a crushing letter. And my husband just read it and I cried and then we 
took that letter and you know put it in a shoebox buried under under lots of clothes in the back of the closet. And um, I I did not talk to my dad. Um, you know, my mother ended up running away from work and home on a on a Greyhound bus to come meet Gary, and she instantly fell in love with him. Um, but my dad would not make amends. And as I write in the book, when Mark McGuire was chasing the home run record and broke it finally, um, my dad called me out of the blue and said, can you believe he did it? He didn't do it alone. It takes a team. And I knew this was my dad's apology and it was probably going to be the only one that I ever received in my life. It was the only way he could say, I'm sorry without saying I'm sorry. And Gary was furious at me for, for taking my dad back in my life, but I am a, I am a, you know, I'm a big believer in forgiveness. I'm a big believer in what my mother taught me about not living with regrets. And I just, saw something in my dad that I hoped um, would, if I loved him enough, would allow him to change. So that was his apology. And I have to say, my my father, through his relationship and love of Gary, um, changed profoundly. And, you know, Gary gave him things that I couldn't. And my father gave Gary things that his dad couldn't and vice versa with his family. Um, and it was amazing to witness the slow painful evolution of my dad um, to becoming the, the man I always believed he could be. Um, but, you know, if I had not, if I had not kind of buried my own pain and accepted him back at that moment, I don't think any of that would have ever happened. Wow. Well, sports is also, was also a way you connected with Gary's father. It was, yeah, yeah. I write, I write a lot about it. You know, <laughs> you know, I, I, I say, you know, growing up, you know, Ozarks boys have to learn to play baseball. And Gary was raised in um, Southern Illinois and Carbondale, Illinois, and you know, we we have scrapbooks filled with Polaroid pictures of us standing, you know, with our glove outstretched and the ball flying over our heads, you know, just unable to really be that athletic and and do what our fathers wanted, although they loved sports and, you know, they loved to play ball. And, you know, Gary's father was an incredible athlete and it was, he, he was shocked actually when I met him for the first time and a Cardinals game was on and I sat down to watch it and I actually knew more about the game than he did, (laughs) you know, why, 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 why they were allowing the pitcher to bat in a crucial spot or, you know, why um, they substituted a guy um, for another batter. He just was always, I, I said, you know, it was almost like if J-Lo had shown up in his house to do a <laughs> halftime show. That's how shocked he was. But we did. His, his father was, his father, you know, struggled, his, you know, came from nothing and became a superintendent and got his PhD. And I had such great at admiration for him because he reminded me so much of my grandparents and what they had overcome. And, um, you know, that's, it's what, you know, it's what our, our elders and our parents can give us if, if, you know, we just slow down and just take a seat with them and listen to their stories. Hmm. What is the, the, um, fairness doctrine in, 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 uh, news reporting. Can you explain that? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Yeah, it's and, and let me recall as I'm working on a new novel. But yeah, the um, there's a FCC into the fairness 
doctrine um, and the media. Um, and it was, you know, previously on most news stations, you know, any broadcast station, if one side of an opinion was broadcast, no matter what the subject was, there had to be an opposing viewpoint um, to balance that. It was the way news operated um, forever, and that was dropped. Uh-huh. And and to me, and it was at, at a point in night. It was in 1987, 88 when I was when I was in journalism school. So we talked about it a lot. You know what the impact that might have on the media as time kind of went on. And I think we can uh-huh. see what's happened. You know we. Yeah, you, yeah. If you're if you're not a po- if you're not bringing two viewpoints to play, then you're not allowing viewers and listeners a chance to hear both sides and think for themselves and make up their own minds. Um, what's happened, unfortunately, is that we are often on so many stations just broadcasting one point of view. So people aren't being educated fully on the issue or the subject or being allowed to think on their own. It's almost just like tablum being fed to children, (laughs) babies, and, you know, we're eating it up and believing that's the ultimate truth. And it's, I think it's been a huge problem as far as fair intellectual um, discourse in this country about um, very volatile and sensitive subjects where I think in the past we used to fight, but there used to be much more measured dialogue about things. And you're seeing that, I think, in the media, you're seeing that in politics, things are so polarized. And I, I do believe that, you know, that being allowed to fall to the wayside had a, had a really negative impact on, on our media. True, and oh, I I yeah. think that people, a lot of people didn't realize that it wasn't still required. I mean, I've, I remember hearing people talk recently. They thought that it was, and so they assume that they are getting both perspectives when they really yeah. aren't. <laughs> They're not. Well, there is a new, there, yeah, there is a new, a new, uh, new is called News Nation, and, uh, I get it on on dish and um it's uh about three or four hours every day and they say that they give both sides in they do pretty much. So maybe there's that's a great. trend to doing that again. Yeah. I hope yeah. so. I mean that's what that's what it takes is just you know, I you're not gonna change anyone's minds in, in a course of an hour, but what can happen is if you as you say, if you're hearing both sides of an issue and you walk away from that, then you, you start to think on your own. You know, you start to mm-hmm. kind of wrestle with these questions and issues uh, by being educated. And we, I, I hope there's a trend back to that. I really do. You know, I, I do believe Thank that, you. you know, things swing back. You know, it's, I, I think everything comes back in vogue again. I mean, I see high-waisted jeans and bell bottoms. <laughs> I wore those and I looked bad in them. So good, good luck to all of you. Yes, I remember high waisted jeans and and bell bottoms too. <laughs> everything everything ends up coming back sometime. I think. Yeah. When it comes to fashion, yeah, at least. 
Do you feel like your father ever really accepted you for who you are? I do. I, I do. You, it's, um, I think about this a lot. You know, my dad had no idea, and even at, toward the end of his life, what I, I could comprehend what I did for a living. You know, how, <laughs> how you know, Ozark's man, how, how do you make a living communicating? You know, it just doesn't compute to him as an engineer. You know, there are certain jobs that are the checklist that you are supposed to do, and I did not fit into that checklist. But I think there was, toward the end, um, an admiration that I had, you know, his philosophy was, like my grandparents, you keep your head down, you keep your nose down, and you just work hard, no matter what it takes. And my dad was an engineer, but he worked for a man I write in the book about who was an entrepreneur. And I think my dad began to see that in what I had done. You know, I was not that far removed from who this man was or who my dad was for taking, you know, a big risk in his own life to work for, for him. Um, so I think he, there was an admiration for that. And I think my father through his conversations with, with Gary and Gary's openness and, you know, transparency and honesty forced my dad to confront a lot of things that he never would have in his life. And it, Mm -hmm. you know, I think he saw an, our relationship, things that um, he did not have with my mother, which was, you know, instead of enabling often each other, Gary and I are, you know, Gary's the most open, honest person I've ever known in my life. So nothing is swept under the rug, which is how I grew up. You know, emotions are not shut off. You must share how you're feeling. Um, you know, the exact opposite of, of pretty much how I grew up. And I think that my father saw that and admired that. And I think that changed him greatly too. Yeah, that, that's great. You're listening to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. Our guest today is Wade Rouse, author of Magic Season, A Son's Story. Do you, Wade, do you think it's any easier for um, a young person who's different growing up in a small town in the Ozarks today than it was for you? Mm. Wow. Uh, great question. Um, you know, I think in many ways it is and it isn't. You know, it is, there are, for me growing up in the 1970s in the middle of nowhere, I I had no role models. I knew nobody that was like me or felt like me. There was no way to even discuss it. Um, so today there are I think there's so many role models. I think there are so many people in the media so that you kids looking out think I, I could be like them or I have, I have hope at a future. Or at least um, there's someone so else that, out there like me. Exactly. That's, yeah. <laughs> changed, that's changed greatly. But I always say this too, there, it, it comes down no matter how much has changed, it comes down to one kid feeling out of place not accepted, not loved. It could be in a city or in a town as small as where I grew up. And it's in an individual, comes down to an individual story and how they are doing and how they need. That's why I wrote this book, Acceptance and Unconditional Love. Um, you know, we are, we're all unique people in this world. And we try to bury that to fit in so often in life, um, you know, to 
to slide through, not be picked on. And that's, it's, it's how we survive sometimes, but it's the worst thing that can happen to us because, you know, without us being our authentic selves and letting that ripple out into the world that, you know, we, we, we end up just being shells of who we are. And I, you know, I, I tell, I talk to a lot of kids and teach writing classes and, you know, I always let them know that I'm, I'm there for them, anything that they need. And I get a lot of letters from kids that, you know, are still, scared. They don't know what to do. You know, they're at crisis points in their lives. Um, and I try to help them navigate that as, as best they can. Now, Caroline, when you were teaching, I know that you really went out of your way to ex- be accepting to all the students. And, and uh, Caroline taught English, 10th grade English. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And so and sociology for a and, while. Yeah. yeah. And um and I loved I loved teaching that. That that was great. <laughs> but then one of the coaches had to have that class so they took it away from me. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's amazing. Yeah. Teachers truly are you know, I had through high school and, and through college I had you know, teachers that were, that truly changed my life and making, you know, making believe that I was, you know, I often didn't, I grew up so much of my life not feeling worthy, not just accepted, but not worthy um, of Mm -hmm. anything, of success or love. And so many teachers like you truly changed my life by just believing in me or listening to me or reaching out to me and you know that, that you know that that's still so vital today. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, well, I had two two rules in my class. When I'm talking, you're not. And uh, the other one was we don't make fun of anybody. And wow. That was not allowed in my class. And, uh, <laughs> but you told me about so, the one yeah. exception to that the other day, Mom. Yeah, the one exception. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I used to give the kids uh, about ten minutes sometimes at the end of class to get started on their homework because I knew that was, uh, that's all the one, that's all the time they'd ever use on it probably. <laughs> and so this, this, kid, this one kid, this one kid was sitting in the back room doing nothing and just, you know, messing around trying to distract other people. And I, so I called off his name and he said, I'm not doing nothing. And I said, yeah, I know. And uh, everybody <laughs> laughed, but, you know. <laughs> but you must have done a good job at teaching them for them to recognize the double negative there because a lot exactly. of yeah, a lot of people don't. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. Was, uh... Now, teaching, teaching, is a, teaching is an interesting, teaching is an interesting, uh, interesting uh, thing to do. It really is. It's, I it think is. I'm glad I did Continuing it. to evolve. Yeah, I think it would be exhausting. Yeah. I, I really admire. Well, yeah, yeah, I really admire yeah, teachers. <laughs> yeah. Wow. In today's world, especially because of the, um, you know, just so much stuff going on is just unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Not, not, not only here, but in the world, you know, just, oh, gosh. Now, Wade, in, in the magic season, you write about, you know, you had, you write about starting to write these women's novels and that you had tremendous success with the first one, but you didn't want to tell your father about it. 
Yeah. Why was yeah. that? I, I, you know, I just didn't, to be quite honest, didn't want him to um, ruin the moment or, or steal the joy from, <laughs> from something that okay. I had accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. So much in his life, it was, you know, he was a, you know, talking about love again, he was love with, you know, always with conditions, you know, I'll love you, but, or I'll love you if, and yeah, my whole life, I always had to meet those conditions or I didn't feel like he, he loved me. Mm-hmm. And I think so many people are like that in relationships. And I just, I had done, it was a tough, I mean, as you know, I mean, you, you do these, these interviews weekly, you know what it's like. It is not an easy field. It is not easy to succeed as an author. It's, it's, I call it BART, you know, it's talent, but it's business meets art, you know, it's a business, <laughs> it's still a big business and it takes mm-hmm. incredible discipline and sacrifice. And I had a rough patch after, um, you know, my, my fourth memoir had been published and I was switching to writing women's fiction. It was a long, it was a long, hard slog to get the book right for my agent to want to pitch it to to new publishers and editors. And I just, I worked so hard. I worked, I, you know, I wrote for people. I taught writing workshops. I would get up at four in the morning to write the novel when I had time. I just didn't give up. And I just did not want my dad to take any of that joy away because I, I wanted to just relish it for myself for just a minute. (laughs) Well, that's, yeah. That's understandable. So when you finished that novel and it was ready to pitch, what happened? Oh, my gosh. It's it's an interesting story. I remember, and honestly, it was was three-plus years from beginning to end. Um, And I would send my agent, Wendy Sherman, who I've been with since day one uh, (laughs) of my career, and she's navigated me and championed me and cheerled me and and yelled at me. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I would send her I would send her early drafts of this, and she goes, "Okay, you know, you're only going to get one shot at this for me to approach publishers. You're this is new. You're basically a new author again, and you only get one shot to get it right." And she goes, "Not only that, you're writing about." Um, three generations of women, which is what the charm bracelet is about. It's about how a grandmother's, the charms on her bracelet reconnect her to her two busy daughter and granddaughter. She tells mm-hmm. them the stories of her lives based on the charms, which is what my grandmother's did with me, essentially. And so it was three generations of women, all distinct, you know, um, character viewpoints. And she's like, if you don't get this right, it's, it's, you'll never get another shot. So it took me many, many, many months to write that in years. And I would send it to her and she'd send it back with notes. I'd send it to her. She'd send it back <laughs> to me with notes. And finally I sent oh, it gosh. and um, she, I, I go, here it is. I think I, it's, I'm kind of pushing commas around right now. And I go, I'm really nervous. I hope you love it. And she just sent me back a week later after she had a chance to read it. She goes, um, I think we're ready to jump. I'll be your parachute. And she sent it out to, you know, a select number of editors. It was interesting because we sent it out under Viola Shipman, just wanting them, my agents 
goal was to just have people give it a clean read, not knowing it was attached to me or thinking about my previous work or what I had done. And Mm -hmm. um, it ended up going to auction. I had multiple offers on it from different publishers, and I ended up selling it to um, St. Martin's, ironically, to the editor who published my very first memoir, (laughs) who had switched Uh, publishers uh, 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 uh. and genres and had no clue. And um, Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It was crazy. Yeah, and then the book sold to Germany and Russia and Spain and Italy and kind of like within a week at all very quickly. So that was great. And I, I switched about uh, four books ago to Harper Collins and love my editor there. And it's been just a, a glorious ride so far. What made you decide to switch publishers? It was, um, it was, you know, it's never easy, yeah. <laughs> to do, but my, my editor that I mentioned left. Ah. Um, and I was with her and then I was with an imprint at St. Martin's called Thomas Dunn. And Tom Dunn is, was, is like if you were to cast a movie with a quintessential kind of Irish editor, um, he would be it. And he was starting to retire. And I just, you know, things were kind of rotating away and I was going to be dissolved into a different imprint with people, you know, an editor I didn't know and people I didn't know. And So that was the um, time to make a change. It was, yeah. Yeah. And we switched to a wonderful publisher that's just a boutique imprint of HarperCollins that focuses on um, women's fiction and it's been great. It's really, you've probably seen a lot of changes in the publishing industry during your time. Uh, (laughs) What huge yeah so what what has impacted you the most do you think you know it's been huge over the years i I always say it's a sea change um you know not only in libraries but in publishing you know it it many things um you know one is that um you cannot just be an author that writes a book and hopes it does well you have to be you know, it's that business part again. You have to be incredibly active. You have to promote yourself. You have to be um, tireless on social media. You have to be um, active in promoting your own books. You have to be active in being out on tour. You have to be. Ex- you have to build a fan base. <laughs> you have to give up you an hour of your Saturday to do interviews like this. <laughs> you do. You've got to be personally interactive. You have to be willing to do anything and everything to reach new readers. Um, that's a huge piece of it. You know, Amazon has changed things greatly. Um, the, the last couple of years, it's, we've, you know, the horror of COVID, but the beauty is, you know, so many online things have grown. Like I do a weekly Facebook Live called Wine and Words with Wade, and it's this, these communities that have been developed among readers where we are supporting one another and we're supporting each other's works. Um, has taken on a life of its own that's just been miraculous to watch. Um, but you, you really have to fight and slog and do as much as you possibly can, and that's different than it was a, a decade ago. Um, there's so many books being published, and um, it's you just have to fight to get your space. Right. And, you know, there was some, I think, some thought that publishing was 
was sort of going downhill, mainstream publishing. Yeah, but, yeah. But I don't think that's true. We we see a lot of really great books. I mean, I feel like the the publishing houses have maybe consolidated more, but there seem to be more imprints within those large houses. Um, mm-hmm. and that there, there are, are. Yeah. And Amazon's and own imprints. Yeah. Yeah. So traditional publishing has not disappeared by any means. It is not. You know, we a few years ago, I remember all the hand wringing. We were like, oh, gosh, ebooks are going to take over the world. And it's, you know, the hardcovers and paperbacks are gone. And this is, what are we going to do? And again, I believe everything <laughs> returns. Everything comes back <laughs> yeah. in vogue. And people, you know, yeah. reached a saturation yeah. point. People love to have them, especially when they travel. But people like having a book in their hands again. I mean, the yes. book sales are up again. And the beauty, the only beauty of, of the last couple of years with COVID were that people began reading more like crazy. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, book sales are, are booming and publishers are doing well. And I think that it, that's kind of stuck now. I think that's not going to go away. Well, that's I, – I... I hope you're right, and I believe so, too. And, Wade, we're yeah. out of time. This has been a really fun conversation, and I really loved reading Magic Season. It just is so, like you said, honest, heartfelt, and humorous. You you got the three H's. <laughs> and thank you both for having me very much. I appreciate it. And, Caroline, you have some closing words for us? Well, I'll tell you, I, I like to take a, a – something from the book if I can and but there were so many great things that he said but this was one of them and I thought for the outtake life is like the game it isn't just happenstance you make decisions inning by inning that that decides the outcome mm-hmm. inning by inning day by day yeah wise words Thank you, Wade, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Bye-bye.